Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, by clicking the Donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. So we'll get into it a little bit today, and we're going to talk about uh, anatta, the Buddhist teaching on not-self. To wrap up a series we've been giving on something called the Three Marks of Existence, these are one of the teachings on the liberating insights that come through this path, the Dharma. And I want to talk about not self, this teaching, but I specifically want to talk about some of the struggles we have with ourself and our self-identity. And this, the Brene Brown calls them the self-made stories. I want to talk about some of the paradoxes of the self. Oh, this is going to be fun. I just realized I printed the wrong talk. (laughs) Hell yeah. Practicing in the moment. I want to talk about the paradoxes of the self, the struggles with the self, and also how on my meditation journey, I've developed some more flexibility through these practices with my relationship to myself. So I want to talk about those three things. I'm acclimating to this chain. The teaching on anatta, this is the second teaching that the Buddha offered. Anatta translates to mean something like not-self. When you see the letter A before a Pali Sanskrit word, it usually means without. So anicca, nicca is permanence. Anicca is without permanence or impermanence. Anatta. Atta means self, on means without self. And it's important that this teaching on anatta comes after the Buddha's first teaching, because in the Buddha's first teaching, like any good teacher, he talks about the problem first. He says, have you noticed life is difficult? It's pervaded by stress and impermanence. Sometimes you get what you want. Sometimes you get what you don't want. That we grow old, that we get sick, that we pass away, and that we want things to be consistent. We want things to be permanent, predictable, reliable, but they're not. And so we experience dukkha, stress. And then the Buddha's main point is he really hones in on this quality of impermanence. It's kind of the essence of his teaching, is that everything is in flux and changing every moment. There are sounds that are coming and going, and thoughts that are coming and going, and feelings and sensations and experiences, and 
on the macro level, there are jobs and relationships, and we focus a lot on those things. But the Buddha is saying that even if you look at just this experience of being human, this moment-to-moment experience, everything is changing. And he says, and people get really hung up on his teaching on anatta, but I think it's really simple when you look at impermanence. He says, that's also true for yourself and what you think you are. Andrew is always changing. Constantly being met with new experiences, interpreting those experiences based on past experiences, relating and exchanging with this environment that's always moving. So I'm changing too. There's no fixed me. And this is one of the things that's really fascinating about the Buddhist teaching. Is he's really interested in the internal world. Not the world out there. He's interested in the world in here. And in this teaching on anatta, he's interested in our relationship with this person I call myself. And he's interested in watching the mind and how it creates this version of ourselves. This is what Brene Brown calls the self-made stories. And this is why we go to therapy, right? These negative core beliefs and these narratives that we've gotten through experiences that we've had in our lives. And so he's interested in watching the mind. And he's also interested in learning the habit patterns of the mind, how the mind has a tendency to take things personally, to put it really simply. You know, the mind is an interpreter and a storyteller. I often reference Chris Niebauer's book, No Self, No Problem. And he is, I believe, a neuroscientist or some type of brain psychologist. And he talks about how it is the role of the brain, a really dominant part of the brain, to interpret and tell stories about the experience that we're having, to kind of create this meaning, which is helpful. We need a brain that can interpret and organize things and tell stories about things. It's part of how we survive. If every moment you had no way of knowing where the hell you were and why you were there and what people were saying, that, uh, well, there are people that have that experience and it's very painful. And so the Buddha is saying here that when we sit down and we watch the mind, because that's what he's interested in, we start to see its habit patterns, is what we start to see is a mind that is really interested in interpreting and telling stories about the experiences it's in. And a lot of those experiences feel very personal. There's one subject I suffer about more than anything else, and that's myself. It's Andrew. It's where I should be and why I'm not there and what I need next and why I'm not there. And what will help me feel less lonely and more confident and have people like me and appreciate me. And that is the, I don't know about y'all, I see a couple heads nodding, so I feel 
you know, a little bit better, but that is where most of my suffering lies. So the Buddha is saying this isn't our fault. This is just what the mind does. Uh, Houston Smith says the mind thinks thoughts like the lungs breathe air. Right? We don't have to wake up and tell the mind to start thinking. It just happens. It's what it does. And the Buddha is saying, he's saying, but the mind is really powerful. So if you're not sitting and you're not looking at what it's doing, you're going to get lost and pushed around by the stories that it's telling. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, our thoughts govern our attitudes and our actions and actually the whole orientation to the world that we live in. Our thoughts might not be clearly formulated in our mind. We might only have a hazy conceptual grasp of them, but whether they're created or not, formulated or not, expressed or maintained in silence, these thoughts have a far-reaching influence. They structure our perceptions of things. They order our values. They crystallize into the framework through which we interpret to ourselves the meaning of our being in the world. It is the mind that creates existence. And now, you know, if you're hanging out at a social event and you say, hey man, it's the mind that creates existence, you know? It's something we can, uh, I can, roll my eyes at. You know, I'm, a, I'm one of these people that's kind of a skeptic, you know? And that's why I love this practice of this invitation. The word in Pali Sanskrit is ehipasiko. The Buddha says to come and see for yourself. He actually wants you to sit down and watch your mind and watch it create your existence. He wants you to see it happen. And I can verify. I've sat month-long silent meditation retreats. What do you have to think about three weeks into not talking to a single person? What stories do you have to tell? What situations or experiences do you have to interpret? Nothing is happening. <laughs> there is plenty that the mind is creating three weeks into a silent meditation experience. Now, given it's a little quieter, which is nice. So one of the first insights that we see through meditation is we start to see, and this is where meditation has helped me become more flexible, is as you start to sit down and watch the mind interpret and create these stories, you start to have this insight or this realization that the mind has a mind of its own. Now, I could tell you all that. Your mind will think regardless of your permission. And we all believe that, or some of us do. But when you start to really internalize that and notice that the mind thinks, we stop taking the thinking mind so personally. You know, in our culture, one of the things that I think I see probably the most as a therapist is people, myself included, struggling with shame. And shame is really perfectionism on the other side of the coin. You know, it's this feeling of this quest for self-improvement. I call it the myth of self-improvement gone wrong. <laughs> 
you know, we're a person that's supposed to you know, shed our skin and shit and piss and talk and relate and hopefully connect and care and support to the best of our ability, but we're people. We're people going through this spinning world. And it's the mind that tells us that I should be this, or I should be that, or I'm not good enough, or I'm not worthy of love. And when I started to have this realization that my mind is the experience creating all of this, I started to notice just how self-centered my shameful thoughts were. And not self-centered in the way we usually think of self-centered. What do we think of when we think of people that are self-centered? Greed. People that only think of themselves, think good of themselves, highly of themselves. You know, and then I started to notice, well, my mind thinks of myself whether I'm better than, whether I'm less than, or even the Buddha in one of his suttas says we should try not to think of ourselves even as equal to because the problem is that we're thinking of ourselves too much. And so we did this exercise at the beginning. What happens when we share about ourselves without talking about our preferences, what we like or don't like, without talking about where we live or who we live with or our profession, what we do for work? What is there left? What I think we find is there's just a lot of commonality. I feel was one of the things that came up. I observe is one of the things that come up. All of that's left over without those things is just this commonality. We're a person that experiences sensation and feeling mind states, thoughts. And I think there's some death to the ego to have this just ordinariness. Zen Buddhism really holds ordinariness on a high pedestal. I like that. You know, it's just not so special, not so awful special, not so wonderfully special, just ordinary. So what happens, I wanted to talk some about the problems of the self and some of the paradoxes. The tendency of the mind is to interpret things in this self-referential way, and, and one of the problems with that I noticed for myself, I'm speaking from personal experience, is that Oftentimes, my mind tends to interpret how good or bad Andrew is doing based upon how I'm feeling in that moment. And my feelings are always changing. And so Andrew is doing good or bad depending on how I'm feeling, changing like a madman all the time. <laughs> and so I started to practice and just notice, you know, on the times that I was beating up on myself, I would just say, okay, how am I feeling right now? Well, I'm feeling disconnected and sad and alone. And so maybe this story that my mind is telling me about how I'm doing is not the best uh, thing to follow right now. Maybe I can just say instead of, 
I'm not doing good in life, I can say I'm not feeling good right now. And that actually helped, that, that little shift from I am to there's loneliness and there's sadness. And so another thing, another problem with the, the mind and the self is that we tend to perceive our present experiences based on past experiences. Even unconsciously, and, and they've studied this in looking at our memory system and how we have this procedural memory and all of these sensations, emotional experiences that kind of are overlaid into our present, but that are really stored from the past. Right? Like one for me as a previous drug addict and you know, pretty rambunctious kid is I have this bodily response to people of authority. And today, fortunately, I've started to work with my relationship to that part of myself. It hasn't gone away. It's just this ongoing relationship with, don't tell me what to fucking do, Andrew, that lives in here, in my chest. And when he comes up, it's like, oh, hi, buddy. 13-year-old's in here right now. But this is your boss. <laughs> And we don't want to fuck this up, so <laughs> let's go for a walk. I'm going to spend some time with you. I'm going to breathe with you and let you know I understand why you're here. Meet that part with some compassion, some understanding. And then that part doesn't have to drive the car for the rest of the day. You know, So that's a fortunate example. I have some examples of not so fortunate moments. But that's the possibility, right? Is that we can start to, you know, respond to the actual present instead of the body's stored past. Another thing that tends to happen, one of the problems with the self is that, like I kind of talked a little bit about before, is that uh, we have a hard time taking responsibility when we, when we take too much of the responsibility. And what I mean by that is that when I'm in a shame spiral or when I'm self-critical, I actually have a harder time taking ownership of what's really happening. You know, because I get in this resentment and I get in this kind of victim place or this place of, let's not even call it victim, that's a loaded word, let's call it self and other place. Where it's really hard for me to own just my feeling. I feel afraid, I feel angry, I feel upset. Instead I'm in this place of you made me or this made me or this is unfair or this is not right. And there are injustices in the world, don't get me wrong, but my uh, resentment I've found doesn't help me approach those injustices with constructiveness any better than sitting and knowing where the injustice exists and then feeling this ability to engage. So I found, and this is a little bit hard thing to articulate, that the more shame and self-criticism I have, the more... I actually don't engage in the things that are important in the ways that I want to. And the less ownership I take of my, in my part. 
because as was talked about earlier, when I see myself as a part of this thing, like really deeply interconnected to all of this that's going around, I want to engage. When I see myself as separate and I'm made other because of it, I don't want to. It's my experience. Emily McDowell writes, finding yourself is not really how it works. You aren't a $10 bill in last winter's coat pocket. You are also not lost. You're right here. Sometimes buried under the cultural conditioning and other people's opinions and inaccurate conclusions you drew as a kid that became your beliefs about who you are now. Finding yourself is actually returning to yourself, an unlearning, an excavation, a remembering who you were before the world got its hands on you. In Tibetan Buddhism, they have this very beautiful guiding principle of Buddha nature, which is that who we are, you know, in our various manifestations and however we show up in this world, is just kind of the covering. It's just like was talked about before. It's just the surface. The Andrew, the preferences, the job, the, you know, all of those things, which the Buddha is saying, those things are fine. You got to have those things. He's saying, but don't mistake those for your essence, who you essentially are. And that all of us have this potential because this potential exists now, this potential to wake up not to some enlightened state, but to wake up into this experience. And the more that we do that, the way we find a way to wake up skillfully with wisdom and with compassion. And that's what we're practicing. It's really simple. As much as my mind complicates it, I'm trying to be here with more clarity and more of a wise and caring response to the things that I'm experiencing. And what's really sucks about that is that I forget that. I make it more complicated than that. But what's really great about that is I always can start over. And that's what meditation is. So if you're new to meditation, you want to know what meditation is, it is something you will never get right. It is always starting over. It's always just returning, as Emily McDowell's saying, to where you are now, returning to yourself, returning to this experience. And so having this insight of not taking the mind so personally, we can start to view the mind as an object. Yes, we can objectify the mind. It's healthy. It's helpful. It's just a part of this experience. And this second insight that I started to notice through practice is that it wasn't actually about trying to stop or change my thoughts. It was actually about changing my relationship to my thoughts. And so here's the paradox. It's not about self-improvement. It's not about changing our experience. It's about changing our relationship to the experience we're having. And by doing that, we change our experience. So wherever we are, it's about meeting that moment however it is and saying, this is happening right now. Y'all know Tara Brock's reign? It's a secular way of teaching this really deep insight, which is stop 
and recognize what's happening, allow it to happen, investigate your relationship to what's happening and try to nurture or relate to it in a compassionate way. Let it be. Change it changes our relationship and actually allows us to get out of these patterns of suffering. And so this is one of the Buddha's main teachings is he says happiness doesn't come from what you get out of experiences, but how you relate to them. What you get out of experiences is totally not up to you. We think we have influence and that kind of keeps us going along, just trying to get the next thing to work out or to have our happiness be in the next job promotion or once I'm in the relationship or once I get this or that. It's just enough to kind of keep us chasing and nothing's wrong with those things but when it comes from this black hole of need y'all know that feeling that empty place inside of ourselves the buddha calls that tanha he says it's in an unquenchable thirst and he calls it perpetual wandering but when we sit and we notice the emptiness that exists in those moments and we can bring our loving awareness to it, there's no longer anything to feel empty around. We have our awareness. We have everything we need. It may sound lofty to you, but that's been my experience is this kind of next part of my practice was realizing that as one of my meditation teachers said, there's only what you love and what's longing to be loved in here. He said, and when is it time to lay down the sword for those parts of yourself that you're battling with and just say, all right, I've got to love it all, that emptiness I feel inside. I've got to sit and I've got to be that awareness that can hold that. Because if I can't, it's going to go out into the world just trying to find a way to feel whole. And I still do, and it sucks, you know? It's like, you know, so I... Patience. It's a marathon. So the last thing, just real quick, that I want to share about with this is... I'm still baffled how I printed the wrong talk, but... <laughs> it's like parts of it, but not the rest. The last thing I wanted to talk about is these heart qualities, right? And these, uh, the Buddha calls them Brahma Viharas. And during the Buddhist time, uh, a little bit of historical context is, you know, the Buddha didn't practice Buddhism. Buddha means wake up, right? So Buddhism means wake up-ism. And the Buddha is maybe a person, Siddhartha Gautama, you know, but... What the Buddha taught was something called the Dharma. And the Dharma means seeing things the way that they are. And during the time that the Buddha lived, he was really kind of a reformer of the tradition that already existed. The Buddha didn't really want, it sounds like to me, to be a spiritual person or some revered person of his day. He was really kind of an activist. Um, this kind of inner rebellion of 
finding peace and happiness and kind of actively engaging with some of the oppressive things that were going on during his time. And uh, there were these people called the Brahmins and the Brahmins based on the perspective at the time were these people that were born into their class. This is a very stratified society, very class centric. And it was believed if you were born a Brahmin, you were born closer to God. Brahma means God, the creator. And the Buddha, and I think this is really badass, and so I wanted to share this a little bit of history with you all, is the Buddha um, shared about these things called the heart practices and all of the things that the Buddha talked about. He said you have to cultivate. They're trainings, not beliefs. They're, they're practices. And so um, he says you, you want to cultivate these four heart practices, and they are loving kindness, compassion, appreciation, and equanimity. And he called them Brahma Vihara. And if you just hear the word Brahma Vihara, Brahma means God, Vihara means home. You think, oh, cool, it means the home of God, you know, or divine abode or whatever it may be, resting place, refuge. But if you know the history, what the Buddha is doing is he's saying, you know how you get close to God? Getting close to your heart. Not climbing the caste, not fulfilling your role and duty in society, but by being close to your heart, by cultivating your heart with loving kindness, with compassion, with appreciation, with equanimity. And so these are the advanced practices. You know, the more and more that I uh, sit in meditation, the more and more that I see wisdom and compassion, sometimes they're called the two wings of Buddhism, are really the same thing. And I think if there's going to be, a, for me, a better entryway into more peace and happiness, it's going to be through trying to be more loving and kind towards my experience, trying to be more compassionate when things are painful, trying to have non-attached appreciation for the moments when the mind is clear and appreciating those pleasant moments without attaching to them and to have more equanimity and peace with things the way that they are. And so, anatta, trying not to take the mind so personally. The mind has a mind of its own. It's about how we relate to the mind, not changing the mind, that's gonna help us. And it's relating with kindness and compassion, appreciation and equanimity. That's the how. And so if you're new to Wild Heart, that's what we do every week. That's what we're trying to do here. Um, and part of that is community. So we'll open it up to hear from y'all, your experiences, your thoughts, your feelings, whatever you would like. There's no expert 